God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On a Friday morning last February, weather not too different from today, I was uh, riding my mountain bike, charging downhill, feeling pretty rad. And then I hit a tree and I fell off my handlebars about 15 feet, like not exaggerating, about 15 feet and I landed on my left arm. And when I got up, my left arm didn't so much hurt as it felt odd and I didn't have full range of motion. Called my wife, she picked me up, thank you Meg. Uh, later that afternoon though, my arm still felt weird. I couldn't move it all the way. That night, the same thing, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. Finally, I thought I just have to go to the doctor and find out what is going on. I got an x-ray and even though my arm wasn't swollen and I couldn't see anything wrong with it, the x-ray enabled me to see that which was invisible to my natural eye, which was a small fracture or some bone in here. And even though the x-ray did not do anything to improve my physical condition, seeing the picture a bit more clearly did make me feel better. It made a difference. Well, Daniel 7, the text that Bob Woodbury so wonderfully read for us, is a particular type of, is a particular instance of biblical literature. It's not history like we get in the book of Chronicles. It's not the prayers that we see in the book of Psalms, not even the prophecies in Isaiah, certainly not the Proverbs from the book of Proverbs. It is an instance of apocalyptic literature. Now, I know, fancy word, but apocalyptic literature is just that. It's just a genre or it's a type of writing. And it has a few characteristics. One of them, as you might expect, is that it's highly symbolic. We're not supposed to actually imagine a leopard with wings one day roaming the earth. The apocalyptic literature speaks in ways that are highly symbolic. Picture a full-length animated film. It conveys literal truth, but not literally. Um, but more importantly to what I want to try to say today is that apocalyptic literature, of which Daniel 7 is a type, has a very distinct purpose. You might say a twofold purpose. One of the purposes is to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. Apocalyptic literature says, all of you stuck in 2020, don't worry. Something is gonna happen someday in the future and it will change everything. Apocalyptic literature points us to our future deliverance. But it also, second purpose, it sets the present moment in light of the unseen, invisible realities of the present. Apocalyptic literature says, all of you who are stuck in 2020, there is more to reality than meets the eye. Apocalyptic literature, Daniel chapter 7, it pulls back the veil. It opens the curtain. It enables us to see that which we cannot see with our natural eye. You can imagine it as a type of x-ray. And if I do my job, by exploring the imagery and some of the things that Daniel sees in this passage, my hope is that you'll feel a little bit better afterwards. It will make a difference. It won't fix your broken arm, it won't fix what's wrong in the world, but it might enable you to see a little bit more clearly. So what does Daniel see in this apocalyptic vision, this unveiling of the world? Well, he first sees things about our planet, about Earth. And he describes the Earth as a great sea. It's a large body of water. And the sea is not tranquil or placid or smooth as glass. 
Uh, and it's not just choppy with little white tops on the horizon. The four winds, great winds, not just one gale, four winds are whipping up the sea to create these monstrous waves. Peter's favorite movie is The Perfect Storm. Just kidding. But picture the perfect storm and the, uh, the boat can't make it over that huge wave. That is what Daniel sees. Very suggestive image. And it actually contains a subtle allusion to the second verse in the entire Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it describes God's act of creation like this. The wind or the spirit of God hovered over the deep chaotic void. And what that passage is about is how God ordered the chaotic universe. Our passage in Daniel 7 reminds us that because sin has entered our world, God's original order in creation has been spoiled. And therefore, the world that I live in and you live in is unpredictable. It's um, unstable, and it can be quite unsafe. We might be smooth sailing, and then one day, all of a sudden, a white squall of a job loss or a cancer diagnosis will come upon us unawares and will completely change everything. Daniel is pulling back the veil. He's saying, that's what it's like to live on our planet. It can be very scary and unpredictable. That's not all, because out of the tropical cyclone that we call planet Earth, Daniel sees four great beasts emerging. Four monstrous, grotesque, not even uh, classifiable animals. They're like a leopard, like a bear. What do we make of this? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess. Uh, In the latter half of Daniel 7, which Bob did not read for us, uh, Daniel asks, what does this dream mean? And an angel tells him. And the angel tells him that those four animals represent four successive empires. They represent history for Daniel's readers, history as they knew it. These were people who had been subjugated for 500 years. First, it was the Babylonians, then it was the Persians, and then the the empire of Greece with Alexander the Great, and finally, the Roman Empire. Four animals corresponding to four different instances of subhuman sovereignty. But it's interesting. I just did that little historical reference point, but I'm actually going beyond the text. Most scholars think you can link those empires to those different beasts, but as a matter of fact, the Bible omits any specific point of reference. And I don't know exactly why the Bible does that, but my guess is that the Bible is vague on purpose because it allows us to use the image that, images that Daniel was given to make sense of our own day. That we live in a world where um, economic and political and social and cultural powers cohere and create a scenario where the poor of the earth are threatened, are subjugated, and where we, even with a relative amount of privilege and affluence, feel assaulted and vied for with our affections and our wallets every hour of every day. We do ourselves a disservice when we locate Trump or Russia or the People's Republic of China on some biblical map and imagine that Daniel is predicting that which is happening in the New York Times. Daniel is not. But we can say that like Daniel, we too live in a world terrorized by beasts. That's the whole point of this series. We're trying to live faithfully in a beastly age.
Well, that is a picture Daniel paints of life on earth. Not altogether positive. That's another theme of apocalyptic literature. It's profoundly pessimistic. Uh, but nevertheless, we go on. All right. Uh, so in, you know, if you imagine Daniel wearing bifocals, the lower lens, he sees a sea and these beasts roaming the earth. In the upper lens, not necessarily spatially up, but in the other realm that Christians call heaven, he sees a few things. First thing he sees are thrones set in place. Remember, there's more to reality than meets the eye. I don't have to work that hard to convince you that life can be unstable and that there are tyrannical forces working in our world, but there is more to reality than meets the eye. And brothers and sisters, there is a throne. There is a headquarters. There is a control center. Someone has authority over the universe. Someone who provides, who superintends. Things are not random. Accidents do not truly happen. Daniel sees thrones set in place over and above and within the chaos that we all know so well. There are thrones set in place. And someone sits on that throne. Daniel calls him the Ancient of Days. That's a designation or a description of God that's peculiar to this book in the Bible, this verse, uh, as a matter of fact. And what it speaks to you is that God is eternal. God has been there from the beginning. God will be there in the end. And if you are eternal, friends, nothing can surprise you. You've seen it all. You see it coming. No um, plan in heaven or on earth can outwit you what God wants to happen will happen because God is the ancient of days. He is sovereign over time. He sits upon the throne. God is sovereign over history, presiding over all things, reigning supremely as God, acting decisively and at the perfect moment to humble the proud and exalt the humble. Whatever. There is a throne. There is a God who sits upon it. And third, there is a river of fire flowing from the throne, and it burns, burns, burns. God's entire being is fire in a sense. It says in Deuteronomy 4, our God is a consuming fire. What does it mean that God's throne is on fire? That, the fire, that the, a river of fire flows from the throne. It means not only does God provide, not only does God superintend, it means that there is a reckoning coming. Again, there is more to reality than meets the eye. Do bad actors get away with a lot of bad things in our world? Will evil people die happy and content? Yes, they will. But there is more to reality than meets the eye. And there is a day of reckoning coming when God, the judge, will overthrow wickedness and injustice. Well, God will fight for those who cannot fight for themselves where God will right every wrong and make every sad thing untrue. That's what judgment is in the Bible. That's not primarily punishment, like we think of when we hear the word judgment. It's almost exclusively adversarial. In the Bible, judgment or justice is God fighting for people who cannot fight for themselves and is creating a situation in which all peoples can flourish and thrive. There's fire. There is a throne. There is a God who sits upon it. 
The fourth element in Daniel's vision of heaven seems out of place, at least to me. Because alongside the thousands upon thousands of heavenly beings who attend to God on his throne, somewhere around the lake of fire or the river of fire, there is a library, or at least a series of bookshelves. I don't exactly know, but what I do know is that there are books being opened in heaven. Right now, things are not what they seem. There are books open in heaven. What does that signify? Well, those books are presumably not blank. Something is written in them. And what is it? The image to you might strike you as foreboding. You can picture yourself before a judge and the judge throwing open a record of the laws and it listing all of your wrongdoing. But that is not what is happening here. When you think of, you can actually, what I did is I did a word study of different times in the Old Testament where it talks about a book and in connection to God. And what you see are passages like Psalm 139, for example. You might know Psalm 139, it talks about us being formed in our mother's womb, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And here's what it says in verse 16. Your eyes, God, saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In heaven, there, is a, there are books that have been opened. What is in those books? A plan. God's plan to still the raging sea. God's plan to bring peace to the nations. God's plan to bring the original purpose of creation to fulfillment. God's plan to bring heaven to earth. The books contain the meaning of world history, but also your history and my history. There is a book in heaven that's written about you and what God wants and longs for you and your life. And the fact that that book is open means that God is active in your life, bringing his purpose for you into fulfillment. I know what it's like to stand before a judge with a book opened and the fear of what might happen to you. That, you know, it can almost take your breath away. When I was 18, I, uh, I got a DUI and I was arrested and I had to stand before a judge. And look, of course, I had, not of course, but I mean, look at me. I had a lot of privilege and affluence. I had a lot of advantages going into that courtroom. I am very cognizant of that. Nevertheless, it is terrifying to stand before a judge. You feel metaphorically naked. But that day, that day of judgment, that day of what could have been the worst day of my life, in many ways, proved to be the, the best. Because that was the day when what was written about me in some book in heaven somewhere began to become true. That was the day when God's plan for my life began to be fulfilled. I began to become the type of person whom God created me to be. He didn't change who I was, but God did change what I had become. And I am all the better for it. Friends, there is more to reality than meets our eyes. And there is in heaven, not only a God, not only a throne, not only fire of judgment, but a book in which the plan for your life is written and God's purposes will be fulfilled. Earth, sea, beasts, heaven, throne, fire, whatever. And the final element, the final movement in this scene, Daniel, his bifocals are 
thrown away. And he sees these two realms, heaven and earth, converge. He sees, we're told, a son of man riding on the clouds of heaven, approaching the ancient of days. And what's the significance of, of this vision? Well, son of man, uh, we hear it perhaps as a title, but it, it is in fact just a simple description. We, it would be better if we just saw the words human being because that's what it literally means. Daniel sees a human being, someone with fingernails and body fat and hair, approaching the ancient of days. And you might, well, Daniel might have thought, well, this is perhaps a king or a ruler being anointed or are equipped by God to rule. But there's a second element of this vision. Daniel sees this human being riding on the clouds of heaven. And that, perhaps more than any other verse in this story, would have tickled the ears of Daniel's original hearers. Because the prerogative of riding upon the clouds, poetically, of course, was a description of God's activity in God alone. Isaiah 19, 11, Behold, the Lord is riding swiftly on a cloud. So Daniel sees a semi or quasi or divine human figure approaching the courts of heaven and being given a kingdom. Now, I don't know how Daniel thought this promise would be fulfilled. But I do know how Jesus thought it would be fulfilled. Jesus said, that son of man riding on the cloud of heaven, that is me. In Mark 14, when Jesus is standing before the religious leaders, they ask him, all these people are saying, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Do you accept that designation? And he says, I do and you will see the Son of Man riding on the clouds of heaven. This passage in Daniel 7 is about Jesus, and it's about a, a particular person, a Mediterranean peasant, who is also God, and who ascended to the throne of God, and even now is guiding all of human history to the purpose intended by God. My wife and I, like a lot of couples I know, especially during quarantine, struggle to find shows that we both want to watch. I don't know if you can relate to that, but a lot of people at the 8 and 9 a.m. could agree with me. Um, and, but one of the shows we do like to watch together is uh, The Crown. And I'll let you choose who's compromising more, me or Meg. But in, uh, I think it's episode six of season three of The Crown, we see the investiture of Prince Charles, or of Charles to become the Prince of Wales, I believe. Um, the point is, is that it is a very elegant, magnificent procession where Charles is led in with all pomp and circumstance that you might think of when you think of the monarchy. But uh, my point in bringing that up is that that's a, not a bad way to picture what's happening in Daniel 7. This is the royal investiture of King Jesus, and he is given a kingdom. He is given sovereignty, a dominion that will endure forever. Again, there is more to reality than meets the eye. This, this is symbolic truth. This is symbolism conveying a literal truth. Right now, Jesus Christ reigns in heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. The coronavirus, the upcoming election, all of the injustices that would take me hours to enumerate happening right now. Do not surprise him. Do not shock him. Do not call his goodness into, into question. Jesus is presiding over it all. And one day, second, remember that purposes of apocalyptic literature, the present and the future, that's what's present. And one day in the future, this entire thing is gonna make sense and we're gonna fall down and worship 
of our God. Final couple thoughts as we conclude. First is about worship. I kind of intimated this already. Every time we gather together to sing, to pray, to read scripture, whether there's two of us or there's 2,000 of us, we are joining a service that has already begun. Right now, there are thousands upon thousands worshiping God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our little efforts to do that for 80 minutes on Sunday, we are joining a party that has already started and it's gonna continue once we shut the live stream down. We begin or we participate in a song that is already being sung. Now, the second thing I wanna say is about, about oneness or about unity, and it relates to all saints. All saints, we remember, of course, those saints who have gone before us, like St. Francis of Sissi, Assisi or Teresa of Lasso. Um, but we also remember that there are hundreds of millions, billions Christians right now who are worshiping Jesus Christ on All Saints Day. And many of them, of course, do not look like us. They don't experience the world like we do. They don't, they, they don't worship God like we do in a lot of ways. And they know aspects of who God is and what God is like because of their unique set of experiences. And if there was ever a day to thank God for the diversity of the body of Christ and the way in which Jesus does not belong to or is not the property of any particular group or culture, but that we are all regardless of economic status or education or whatever, we all share this profound unity. You know, 2020 has been an apocalyptic year. The veil has been removed. And a lot of our thinking, uh, a lot of our idols and a lot of our sins have been brought to light. I've had to think a lot about my own as, as it relates to this, this question of, of, of unity amidst diversity and how we uphold that and how we celebrate that and where my thinking has been impoverished and facile and maybe even manipulative and how I've thought that might work. So I'm not saying I have a hold on how to bring people from very different backgrounds, a very different color together well. That is not my intention. My intention is just to thank God that there are Christians who experience the world so differently than me, that love Jesus, that know Jesus, and that point me towards Jesus in a way that I wouldn't know him in and of myself. That's a wonderful truth to lay hold of and to celebrate this All Saints Day. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the x-ray, that it shows us what's wrong and it points us towards what's right. And my prayer, Lord, is that you would um, help those who have heard this message, that you would help them by bringing to their mind and into their heart that which I've said that is reflective of you and your character and your word. And everything that is not, Lord, that you would let it fall away with no consequence. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.